Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. It's a beautiful summer's day. 26 degrees Celsius. The sound of lawnmowers and birds singing. Right. Truly, truly summer is here. Indeed. How are you feeling? I'm doing good. I like sunny days. I like days where you can see the blue sky and all the greenery and the fluffy white clouds. I'm good. And the fluffy white clouds of poplar fluff, as poplars are incredibly popular mm. in Calgary. Who, who'd have thunk it? Poplar is popular. Yes, indeed. <laughs> well, I'm pretty excited about the episode today. Yeah, um, I think it's going to be an interesting one. It's certainly going to be a sort of landmark significant moment it's our first italian horror film mm-hmm. uh, it is i vampiri from 1957 uh, and that title just means the vampires yes and uh, since it's our first italian horror film there's like a lot of context setting that we can do i know history is like a very long story but trying to be brief Italy entered World War I in 1915. Their goal in doing so was to kind of unify its expanding borders. There's already the Italian diaspora kind of living beyond Italy's borders. And Italy was like, cool, but now we're going to go conquer those areas and officially make them part of Italy. Um, And they would do this in 1915 through uh, annexation, active war, such as in the case of Austria and Austria-Hungary, as well as treaties with allies. So by the end of World War I, despite the promises made with the Treaty of London of, hey, if us allies win, Italy, you'll get these things, the allies did not honor that. So Italy kind of saw their victory at the end of World War I as a, quote, mutilated victory. So Mussolini... Mm-hmm. He had been on the political landscape since 1912, and after World War I, he started using that mutilated victory in his main rhetoric around dissatisfaction of post-war winnings, I guess you could say. His official start to his fascist movement came in 1919, um, because in post-World War I, Italy was very disjointed, unemployment was incredibly high, um, a lot of economic instability, there were many workers strikes and labor disputes as well as like factories being like fine we'll like make our own internal government in this factory and that going poorly as well as many right and left wing conflicts in urban and rural areas so in this context Mussolini argued with his nationalist rhetoric for stabilization and order you know a lot of similarities here with what you might know about Germany's history post-World War I and Hitler coming to power. As seen in our episode 57 on Fairman Maria, uh, where we gave context of film in Nazi Germany, horror was banned in fascist Italy, specifically in like the 30s and 40s. So while Mussolini didn't instigate cultural controls in the same way that Hitler did through like committees, 
um, he did have authoritarian control over the state, culture production, as well as even church structure and bureaucracy, which I think is really interesting. Like many fascists, Mussolini was very pro-war, expansionist, etc. So when he joined Nazi Germany in taking over Europe during World War II, he again invoked that rhetoric of a new Roman Empire, with eyes to the west in southern France, east to Slovenia, Yugoslavia, Croatia, Greece, and southwest to northern Africa. However, despite his, like, pro-war, like, oh, I love the military kind of image, fascist Italy consistently failed in battle prowess, I guess you could say. The reasons are pretty complex, but it's a mix of that historical emphasis on foreign policy rather than internal policy, making sure that your people are healthy, that um, you have a lot of production of things you need for war, um, and a good, stable economic scene. So we're in 1943 now, and it's September, and Italy is being invaded by the Allies. Mussolini escapes to northern Italy to set up a puppet state, with the Allied troops making their way through Italy. The Italian troops, along with German troops, would come in to try to push out the Allies, but then would also, in the conflict, a lot of civilians were killed. So there ended up being almost like a civil war um, as anti-fascist groups fought against these uh, German and Italian troops. By May 2nd, Italy surrendered, uh, and then six days later, May 8th, Germany surrendered, and World War II kind of came to a close on the European front. Mussolini was captured and executed, and the person put in charge of Italy after that was uh, Pietro Badoglio. However, over the next eight months, it was basically a revolving door of prime ministers from Badoglio to Alcide de Gasperi, who in 1946, through a constitutional referendum, finally abolished the Italian monarchy. So in less than a year, we have a new republic, a revolving door of leaders. The northeast areas that had originally um, been claimed by Italy were newly annexed by Yugoslavia during uh, some treaty processes. Through treaties, there were also no more colonies. And Italy also saw the immigration of over 230,000 people from specifically the Yugoslavia area, but um, kind of those diasporic populations coming back to Italy, as well as a internal immigration of Southerners kind of moving north to where um, there seems to be a bit more economic stability. Italy saw a huge economic boom to specifically their automotive and fashion industries. Sure. I mean, Italian cars, Italian fashion, that all starts to be a big deal in the latter half of the 20th century. Especially because these things can be exported. Mm. So, for example, Fiat saw production quadruple between 1948 and 1955. With this shift of foreign policy towards cooperation, Italy would become a founding member of NATO in 1949, would join the UN in 1955, and was a founding member of the European Coal and Steel Community, uh, which regulates industrial production in 1952, and the European Economic Community in 1957, which was the precursor to the European Union. Mm -hmm. So this period after World War II 
but specifically 1958 to 1963, is known in Italy as the economic miracle, where we had that big economic boom and a lot of a lot more stability in the country. So for this film, we're in 1957, we're right on the cusp of this economic miracle. We're in a country where it's really pushing its role in the world market and on international exports. So politically and economically, Italy's doing really well right now. Socially, though, that huge influx of people from Yugoslavia, as well as from the south to the north, uh, south being more rural and north being where the, the economic boom is really happening, that whole immigration exacerbated the classes and the class divides, um, especially between, say, immigrants and existing workers, I guess you could say, like people who are, who are already living there, um, as well as a very wide gap between rich and poor. So that's kind of the context that we are in. Okay. But I'm curious what you have to say about the film industry specifically. Yeah, so Italian film production began in the early decades of the 20th century, much the same as film production in other European countries. You know, the earliest Italian film production companies were started up in the you know very early 1900s. And Italy developed quickly into one of the more significant film industries in the early part of the century. In 1911, there was L'Inferno, which was the first Italian feature-length film okay, um, based on Dante's Inferno. And it, that was released a year before the first American feature films. So their film industry was prominent, innovative, and quickly expanding and, and progressing. Uh, within a short while, the Italians were making, you know, big historical epics uh, like 1913's Quo Vadis and 1914's uh, Cabiria. However, uh, after World War I, Italian film suffered a major setback as, like, the Italian economy collapsed. And so Italian film fell behind other European countries and kind of lost that innovative front guard position um, especially to the German film mm-hmm. industry, which kind of like picked up the baton of being the like avant-garde of film art through the 1920s. So to save and promote the Italian film industry, the fascist government um, created a number of protectionist policies designed to encourage Italian film, which also included policies that discouraged the impact of foreign films. So for instance, there were quotas similar to the British system that like there had to be so many Italian films produced, but also there were quotas on how many American films could be imported. And there was a law that all imported films had to be dubbed into Italian. Uh, You couldn't just subtitle stuff. And that had to be done at the expense of the studio producing the movie and putting it into Italy. So basically making it kind of like financially pricey to import your film to Italy you know, so it's not like foreign film dried up entirely, but it was sort of limited to who could afford to have their movies dubbed. The government also set up a nationalized production studio and built a whole town southeast of Rome called Cinecita, or Film City, <laughs> which had studios, sound stages, development labs, post-production facilities, 
and uh, even a film school, which like Hollywood didn't have a film school. <laughs> um, the Italian industry bounced back really successfully due to these fascist policies, if sort of completely in isolation. Uh, not a lot of foreign films were being shown in Italy. And then because of Italy's really like strict policies on importing films, other countries enacted um, like retaliatory policies against Italian films. So Italian films weren't being exported either. Mm. So it was kind of this little like hermit kingdom of film industry, which ultimately was very successful because it was like, okay, so we're working in isolation, right? So you kind of aren't being judged next to anything else. You can develop your own thing. It's just that like Italian film wasn't really being seen on the world stage. Like the national film industry of their allies in Nazi Germany, the fascist government did not allow horror films, um, although it was not quite for the same reason. Mm. So the Nazis believed that movies should be light escapist entertainment that encouraged nostalgia and affection for the homeland. The fascist position against horror films was also one against like fantasy films. Um, it was a position that was mostly about encouraging a focus on realism above all else in order to discourage like peasant superstition and belief in the irrational, uh, similar to the Soviet position mm. on art. Interesting. What's really interesting to me is that the fall of the fascist government after World War II did not result in a creative rebellion against this imposed realism aesthetic. Uh, instead, realism was taken even further in the post-war era, becoming the movement known as Italian neorealism, mm -hmm. with films like Ossessione, Roma, Cita Aperta, Ladri di Biciclette, and Umberto D. These films were very critically lauded internationally as well, um, winning Italian film a place on the national stage again, getting exported to other countries, winning awards, and... Italian film would kind of like stay as a major player on the international film scene through the 50s and 60s. The industry expanded immensely due to this post-war success. Um, so for instance, there were 25 Italian films made in 1945. There were 204 Italian films made in 1954. Wow. Yeah, so basically a like 10 times increase in production over 10 years. Mm -hmm. In 1956, Goffredo Lombardo, who was the head of the Italian film production company Titanos, uh, which had been operating since 1904, uh, he made a statement that he believed that Italy needed to start making films with the European market in mind. So breaking out of this sort of hermit kingdom mentality, because now that Italian film was being accepted and critically acclaimed by other countries. It meant that those other countries had a market for Italian film. And so we need to stop making movies that are like just for Italians. We need to start reaching out and making movies that have more international appeal. Meanwhile, director Riccardo Freda had grown very, very weary of realism. <laughs> uh, he was very sick of the neorealist movement. He was born in Alexandria in 1909, and he went to art school in Milan, and initially he was a sculptor, uh, but he 
changed professions and uh, became a writer in the film industry in 1937, directing his first feature film in 1942. Uh, This movie we're watching today would be his 24th feature film. Wow. Freda did not have any, like, particular interest in horror specifically, but while talking to his cinematographer, Mario Bava, on the set of Beatrice Cenci, uh, he came to the conclusion that horror was the least realistic genre you could do in a relatively low budget. Sure. So he wanted to get as far away from realism as possible, but like, you know, without having to spend the money you need to do to do like a big fantasy thing or a sci-fi thing or whatever, right? Now, Freda felt that only the Americans and the Germans had ever successfully pulled off uh, movies in what he called the fantastique genre. Sure. I think he's probably thinking of like the German expressionist yes, kind of stuff. That's like exactly the very what, stylized. Yes, that's exactly what he's thinking of. Uh, so he wanted to basically enter Italian film into that fantastique realm and out of realism. Now, only one horror film had ever been made in Italy before this. Il Monstro di Frankenstein in 1920, uh, which was made before the rise of the fascist government. Um, But it had not fared well with the Italian censors at the time, who cut it down to 39 minutes, reportedly leaving very little of interest to audiences left in the movie. (laughs) Uh, So because of this, audiences stayed away. The film was a financial failure. And today it's a lost film because no one cared to archive it. Yeah. So Freda pitched the idea of the film to producer Luigi Carpentieri on the idea that it would pass the censors and that it could be shot in 12 days. <laughs> so it was this proposal that Carpentieri pitched to Goffredo Lombardo at Titanus. Lombardo did not care for horror as a genre, uh, but he thought the experiment had commercial potential. So he budgeted it with a low budget, uh, 97 million lire, um, which would have been $155,000 US at the time. Yeah, so like a Roger Corman kind of budget. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the lire was not worth a lot in 1957. So the screenplay of I Vampiri is credited to Piero Regnoli and Rick Sihostrom. Now, Piero Regnoli was a screenwriter who would become known for his erotic themes. <laughs> uh, but Ivan Pieri was only his fifth screenplay since beginning his career in 1951. So probably kind of low on the erotic <laughs> development. We'll, we'll find out. Meanwhile, Rizzi Hostrom was a fictional person. Uh, the other writer of the script was actually Ricardo Freda. Uh, who did not want his name associated with the script, you know, because horror is beneath him uh, to write. Uh, So he invented this, like, Swedish pseudonym. And the storyline takes its inspiration from, like, a lot of old Gothic horror literature and tales. Um, Wonderful. Specifically, the inspirations that were, like, listed were things like um, Follow the House of Usher by Poe and the, like, legend of Countess Bathory, um, the... That's the queen who believed she could be immortal by bathing in virgin's blood? Correct, yeah. 
But Freda kept the setting contemporary in order to keep the budget low. <laughs> sure. It's interesting that you bring up Bathory because she is kind of seen as a vampiric figure. Mm-hmm, yes. Um, because she bathed in blood. Yeah, she often gets like portrayed as a vampire in like modern vampire fiction. Um, or like she she gets dubbed like Countess Dracula. Yeah. Um, when actually she just was a mass murderer. Right. She was just crazy. <laughs> it's fine. I mean, same thing as Dracula, right? Like Dracula wasn't a vampire. He was just a mass murderer. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see like how much the movie draws from any kind of like native tradition versus how much it draws from like cinema, right? Like, yeah. Cause, cause there's been enough of a tradition of like cinematic vampires by this point. And it's like, you know, so is Freda in looking to make a horror movie? Is he thinking about native Italian, you know, horror folklore or whatever, or is he thinking about Hollywood movies that he's seen and trying to imitate? Mm-hmm. And especially with that tie to German expressionism, is he thinking about Nosferatu? Right. And like, you know, we've certainly seen with like Mexican and French horror films that like the modus operandi has very much been like, let's copy universal horror movies because that's what horror movies look like. Right. Mm-hmm. It also has me a little concerned because as we kind of talk about in our episode on 1932's Dracula, there's a very like xenophobic anti-immigrant yes. thing. And Italy is seeing a lot of immigrants. Yeah. Um, especially like rural to urban from mm-hmm. like even internally from the South. So it has me like a little worried, like how they're going to handle that part. If they're going to do a bit more of a Dracula spin. Yeah. Because ultimately like vampire myth begins in rural areas, in small villages in Eastern Europe and sort of spreads out from there. And so it can be tied really easily to fear of immigration. It can be tied really easily to fear of like peasant superstition. And, you know, it can be tied really easily to like feelings of like, well, we're the civilized city folk, you know, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So for the lead female role in the film, uh, Ricardo Freda cast Gianna Maria Canale, which was hardly a surprise because she had starred in all of his movies since 1948. <laughs> uh, Canale was born in 1927 and was the runner-up for the Miss Italia beauty contest when she was 20 years old. She was regarded sort of as the Italian Ava Gardner in her looks, and she fell in love with Freda on the set of Il Cavaliere Misterioso, and Freda left his wife to marry her. Ooh, scandalous. Indeed. So the couple worked together from 1948 onwards, and Canale took the lead in E Vampiri, uh, despite not really liking the part or the movie. <laughs> it would ultimately be her last film that she would make with her husband, uh, although they would remain married until his death in 1999. Uh, she passed away 10 years later in 2009. The film was shot in black and white, by cinematographer Mario Bava, uh, partially to keep costs low and also partially to make the movie's special effects easier to pull off, uh, which Bava also designed. A decision late in the game to shoot the film in Cinemascope 
uh, which is to say anamorphic widescreen, uh, saw the budget increase to 142 million lire, or $227,000. So almost doubled. Mario Bava was born in 1914, the son of sculptor, cinematographer, and special effects artist Eugenio Bava. Originally, Mario wished to become a painter, uh, but when he was unable to make a living at that, he followed his father into the film industry, becoming an assistant cinematographer. His first feature film as a full cinematographer was 1943's La Aventure de Annabella, and by 1957, he had been working under Freda uh, for quite some time. Uh, he was kind of Freda's go-to cinematographer. And he was well-known in the Italian film industry as, like, an excellent cinematographer. Uh, especially of, like, women. Like, he was known for, like, really making, like, Italian women look great on film. Okay. Now, by the 12th day of shooting... So the last day that Freda said that he would have this ready by. Right. The film was not yet complete. Oh, no. Having failed to deliver on his promise to the producers, Freda requested an extension, which was denied. This led to Freda abandoning the production. Just walked off the set and left. He must have been so stressed out. (laughs) Like, imagine the level of stress to just throw up your hands like that. Absolutely. Mario Bava uh, quickly developed a plan whereby the movie could be completed in just two more shooting days. So, like, he's kind of, like, thinking quickly, thinking on his feet, going, like, okay, what have we shot? What needs to be shot? What can we do? And so he went to the producers himself with this two-day plan and got approval to finish the film as its new director in this manner. So to achieve this, uh, Bava and Regnoli made some last-minute rewrites to the script, like like stay-up-all-night kind of rewrites, largely to accommodate the fact that in going over schedule, they had now lost most of the cast. Sure. Because it's like, you know, now I'm shooting this other movie, right? So a journalist supporting character in the film was bumped up to become the lead character <laughs> uh, because that actor was still available, and then because he's a journalist, the character could be used as, like, glue to hold the movie together when there, like, wasn't much connecting the scenes that had already been shot. Um, Some characters' backstories were simplified as there was simply no time to shoot them. Uh, So, like, there's a henchman in the movie who was originally supposed to be, like, a Frankenstein, like, (laughs) assembled from dead parts and brought back to life. Um, Also, Bava changed the ending of the film uh, to a much less grim one than Freda had originally had in mind. Again, partially due to actor availability. The film's music is by Roman Vlad, a Romanian composer from Bukovina who moved to Rome in 1938 and became an Italian citizen. He became an acclaimed and award-winning composer, including of numerous film scores such as this one. I love that, like, someone with the last name Vlad... (laughs) And he's from Romania. Yeah, He's yeah. involved in this vampire movie. Yeah. The film's editor, Roberto Cinquini, would go on to edit Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars in 1964. Oh, shit. So, Ivan Piri was released on April 5th, 1957. It grossed 125.3 million lire, making it a box office failure. 
Oh no! Since it cost 142 million lire. That was the budget before the. That was the budget after. That's the that's the they went over budget to 142, and the movie made 125. Oh no! They shouldn't have done CinemaScope, I guess. So Freda blamed this on a reluctance of the Italian people to accept horror as an Italian genre. Uh, Not to, like, he felt that Italians would watch horror movies, but that they wouldn't watch Italian horror movies because, like, horror doesn't come from Italy. Sure. So for his next attempt at a genre picture, he actually adopted an English pseudonym in an attempt to give a false impression that it was a foreign film. Okay. I mean, I kind of get where he's coming from. Like, Italy is getting, like, a huge boom in exports. Mm -hmm. And these exports, like Fiat, have a really big brand name. So thinking for, like, branding. (laughs) (laughs) The film received mixed reviews at the time. Um, Everyone kind of acknowledged that, like, it had stuff that was really effective in it but that, like, it fell short in other places, although, like, what was effective and what wasn't kind of differed from reviewer to reviewer. Um, And it sort of has the same mixed reputation as a film now. Uh, Modern reviews are also very mixed, uh, though contemporary reviews tend to be a bit more forgiving um, in that they take into account its historical significance in Mm. Italian film history. So modern reviews tend to be more on the line of like, you should see this because it's like historically significant, but like it does have problems. It ironically was felt by several critics at the time that the film didn't push away from realism enough. Interesting. That like the movie spends too much time like explaining things, which is, is sort of funny. You know, even in rejecting realism, like Freda, who had been like part of that movement for so long, like couldn't quite break free of it. The movie was not released in the United States until 1960 under the title The Devil's Commandment. The original picture was cut down to make room for new American scenes shot in New York, written by J.V. Rimes and directed by Ronald Henthauer. This version of the film then had more scenes added to it, scenes of nudity added to it, (laughs) for its release in the UK in 1963 under the title Lust of the Vampire. That's how the Brits know it's Italian. Is there (laughs) nudity? Yes. The original Italian version was not available in the United States until a DVD release from Image Entertainment in 2001, uh, which was a very high-quality release at the time. It received a more recent release in 2013 as a bonus feature on Arrow Video's Blu-ray of Mario Bava's seminal horror film Black Sunday, Mm. which was the movie that really kicked off Italian horror and gave Mario Bava the reputation as being like the father of Italian horror. Mm -hmm. This is him growing up. Yeah. (laughs) So we'll be watching the original Italian version uh, for this episode. Awesome. Well, I am super excited. Uh, as soon, you, you had me at gothic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, folks, we're going to watch the film. Hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Eve Ambiri from 1957, directed by Ricardo Freida and Mario Bava. See you on the other side, everybody. <laughs> 
Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching E Vampiri from 1957, directed by Ricardo Freda and Mario Bava. Sarah, what did you think of the movie? I kept thinking about when, in the context setting, you said that uh, Bava originally tried to be a painter. Mm. Um, I think this movie shows that he now paints with light. <laughs> yes, absolutely. This is a very, very pretty movie. Again, I know you said that they chose black and white to help with the effects. Um, it definitely helps with like achieving the atmosphere and the mood that they're mm-hmm. going for. It's just a very beautiful looking film. I think any person who is interested in cinematography should see this movie. Wow. High praise. What did you think? I really liked this. Okay, good. Yeah. I, because you were like, oh, high praise. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> he didn't like it at all. <laughs> no, you're you're reading too much into my tone there. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. But I feel like, you know, going into specifics can, can wait till later. Um, let's talk about the story, which I do want to say, with like maybe only one exception, the movie does a really good job of like not having it be obvious that like Mm -hmm. a good chunk of the script was rewritten at like the 11th hour yeah it's fairly cohesive it is complex Mm -hmm. for a plot but there's only like a few moments where i'm like huh if i hadn't known that they had to do some changes at the 11th hour i probably would have chalked it up to like a different editing style than what I'm used to. Sure. I think that like you don't really notice like the, you you wouldn't notice at all that like the journalist wasn't supposed to be the main character for instance. Mm-hmm. Um although knowing that I think makes it really clear how little of the movie was shot when Freda walked out. Yeah, because I was going to ask you who 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 was the main character. Right. Well, why don't we talk about the movie story as is first, and then I can talk a little bit about the the changes that were made. Absolutely. When we first sat down to watch this movie, we did have a bit of, or at least I did have a bit of a surprise with this movie because it's set in Paris. Yeah. I thought it was going to be set somewhere in Italy. Right. It makes me think of the fact that like... You don't really think of it when you're watching Hollywood movies, but like, you know, how many American horror movies have even been set in America? Like so often they're like, ah, we're in Paris, we're in London, we're in unidentified European town Mm -hmm. um, so that horror can be something that's like foreign and other that like doesn't exist in America. And we've talked about like how effective it is when it actually is set in America and I can't really speak to why this is, but it's sort of like normalized that, you know, a Hollywood movie can be set anywhere, but you sort of expect a foreign film to be set in the country that made it. Sure. And with Italy having had such a long period of not allowing foreign films in, and also the fact that like America, Italy dubbed all the foreign films coming in my guess is that for like an Italian audience, a bunch of French people speaking Italian wouldn't seem weird at all. Yeah, and I figured it must have something to do with, you said later the director, Freda, 
the next time he makes a genre picture, he goes under an English pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking, well, maybe that's why they did France. Yeah. Here. Horror like, is from other countries. Yeah. Yeah. But in any case, that was a that was a surprise. Mm-hmm. It is still set in 1957. Um, and we see that there is a woman who has been found in the river drained of blood. She is the third woman to disappear. And same kind of situation. They are found drained of blood. They had disappeared two weeks prior. But from the autopsy, doctors can determine that they were killed recently. Mm-hmm. Now, journalist Pierre Lantan has dubbed the killer the vampire in his newspaper. And it's it's a little sensationalist. So yeah. uh, Inspector Chantal considers Pierre to be a bit of a yellow journalist. Yeah. Now, Pierre believes that there's some kind of connection between all the women having the same blood type and that they are kidnapped uh, and then taken to the secondary location. Hmm. Um, he also believes that, you know, this person would have to have some kind of familiarity with needles. The doctor says, but, you know, everyone these days has familiarity with needles. Um, you know, anyone from like a drug addict to someone who has been a patient with a mm-hmm. doctor. Using a, uh, a photo that was taken of the latest victim, Pierre asks around uh, the victim's school and meets her friends. One of them is named Lorette. And Lorette mentions that um, at one point they, as a group, had been followed by a man and identifies that it was this man who was in this picture. And we find out as the audience that that man is back and following Lorette. So this man, uh, we find out his name is Joseph. We see that he is a drug addict. Uh, We don't know exactly what he's addicted to, but he is being manipulated by an unseen man um, saying, I'll give you the rest of your fix if you kidnap this woman for me uh, like you did the others. Now, Joseph goes to follow Lorette and kidnap her, but Pierre is hanging around. So Joseph can't. He books it and Pierre follows him. Because of this, Joseph gets spooked and... Thanks to finding a leftover vial in his apartment, Joseph heads to this doctor and he's asking to see him. And he explains, like, I know it's you who's drugging me um, because your name's on this file. This professor is named uh, Professor de Grand. And Joseph is here. He's asking too many questions. So de Grand's assistant kills him. Yes. Pretty, like, on screen and pretty, like like strangle from behind, like mm-hmm. no qualms at all about yeah. just attacking this dude. Before they kill Joseph, Joseph does mention that, you know, someone was following me and, you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore. So they know that there's someone close on the trail. So to cover up this death and any loose ends, Dugand fakes his death. There is a subplot that I haven't really touched on yet where Pierre is being pursued by this woman named uh, Giselle Dugand. She is the niece of the local duchess, uh, Marguerite Dugand. Now, this comes up because Pierre isn't into Giselle and his photography friend, (laughs) uh, Ronald slash maybe Donald, depending on what the subtitle decided to show, thinks he's nuts um, because he's like, Giselle is gorgeous. She's the niece of a duchess. 
what the fuck anyways i really like the way this subplot starts um because in the beginning it's like very much that kind of um tropey like why don't you spend more time with me like you're so obsessed with your work like who cares about finding this killer like come hang out with me like kind of relationship that like movie protagonists and their girlfriends tend to have so it seems like very normal except she's not his girlfriend yeah she wants to be and he's like no i i'm I'm here doing work stop driving by here to get my attention (laughs) um and it's just kind of neat to see like a girl going after a guy sure Anyways, so it's the funeral, and um, we get some gossiping people, so we get a little bit more exposition of how the Duchess Marguerite paid for the Professor de Grand's uh, school, and, you know, he's being buried on the castle grounds. Because, yes, there's a castle here. Yeah. Where else does a Duchess live? So there's now a new attempt to try to get Lorette. A blind man gives her a letter and says, can you please deliver this for me? So she heads there, and it's this, like, I'll say, like, lavish kind of apartment, but, like, old and creepy. Yeah, it's like if, you know, one of the Adams kids, like, got their own apartment. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, (laughs) overwhelmed with, like, so much stuff on the screen. Yeah. But it's all creepy. Yeah. Um, And just gives that creepy vibes. So she's invited in, locked in, but no, don't worry. Like, we just lock it because of thieves. Brought into this room, and this is great. They send in a little kitten, and so she's distracted by the kitten, goes and pets it, and then uh, the professor's assistant comes up from behind and, like, chloroforms her. And it's like, yeah, that's that's the best way to distract me if I'm in a strange room. <laughs> send in a cat. <laughs> When Pierre and the police follow up with this blind man, because now Lorette's gone missing, um, they find nothing in these apartments except the cat. (laughs) The cat's just hanging out. So it seems like this is a dead end. Lorette's been kidnapped uh, and she's been missing for a few days. Pierre... He he talks to Inspector Chantel, um, especially because he takes them to... Uh, Joseph's apartments. He's no longer there. It's actually a the wrong apartment building. Um, and Chantal is like, well, have you considered that maybe Lorette got kidnapped because you brought attention to her? So Pierre feels pretty guilty. Meanwhile, we see Professor de Grand experimenting on Joseph's body to um, keep the organs alive because Professor de Grand is a mad scientist. Yes. He, he doesn't have Strickfaden equipment, but he has, like, the bubbling beakers yeah. and all of this. The Duchess Marguerite, who um, is quite old and wears, like, a veil over her face, comes in and demands that, no, you need to do my experiment now. Because Giselle is expected at the ball later this week. Ben and I turn to each other and we're like, ah, oh, we think we know what's happening here. Yeah, they make a big point of how... The Duchess is a big recluse, and like if she gets seen, it's always with this veil because uh, she used to be so beautiful, and when she aged, she couldn't really like handle it, so she doesn't like anyone seeing her old wrinkly face. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, oh, okay, you're starting to like put the pieces together. Speaking of the ball, Giselle has basically called up the newspaper editor and said. I want Pierre to come cover this for the social column. 
and I'm the Duchess's niece, so you fucking have to do this. Yeah. So she forces Pierre to come cover the ball for the newspaper. I love this because his like excuse for not spending time with her, you know, in the past has been like, well, I'm on newspaper business. And that's been his way to try and like let her down gently. So she's like, well, now this is newspaper business. So you <laughs> have to come see me. So he brings his uh, photographer, uh, Ronald McDonald. <laughs> um, through uh, some more gossip-based exposition, uh, we learn some of the history of their families. Um, so Marguerite was in love with Pierre's father, but his father didn't love her back, so let her down and married you Pierre's know, mom. Yeah, and had Pierre. Um, Pierre apparently is uh, the spitting image of his father. And at one point, someone ribs, uh, Ronald ribs Giselle at one point. Like, it's it's the curse. Like, you and your aunt were both destined to fall in love with Pierre's family. Yeah. And I guess after, you know, Pierre's dad kind of um, spurned the Duchess, she made a point of being like, a real bitch to Pierre's mom and like ruined Pierre's mom's life in some uh, non-specified way. And this is why Pierre is like very much down on like the whole DeGrand family. Yeah. He doesn't want anything to do with Giselle and she's not getting, she's not getting it. Yeah. Um, Pierre also at this moment is preoccupied with his guilt over (laughs) Lorette being kidnapped and there's still being no word. Ronald However, he's just super in love with Giselle, just completely taken with her. And he decides, ah, after the ball, I will climb up the castle and sneak into her bedroom and profess my love to her. Because what else could be more romantic? A perfectly normal and socially acceptable thing to do here in 1957. I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) So he does this and Giselle is like... What the fuck? And he's freaking out. But Ronald is like a little forceful. He's not taking no for an answer, unfortunately. And so she is like screaming. And it seems like this like strong emotion is having a pretty big impact on her because she starts to change. And her face and youth and beauty melts away into um, an old crone's face. And Ronald is like, what the fuck? And she's like, that's right. I'm Marguerite, my aunt. Giselle is the fake one. Fuck you. And pulls a gun and shoots him to death. Yeah, she shoots him like a couple times. She also sees herself in the mirror with her regular face and shoots the mirror just to kind of indicate like how much she hates her current appearance. Now, Professor Dugrand and his assistant are in the castle and they hear these shots. So they run in and, you know, they take care of the body. And she's like, you need to turn me back into Giselle. Like, I don't care. You need to bring my youth back. And the professor's like, okay, well, it's getting shorter every time. This isn't a sustainable plan. I'm working on some experiments to try to make this like last longer so you you have to give me more time and she's like no you need to do this now i don't care about the consequences and he's like yeah but like this could this could kill you and she's like i'd rather be dead than look like this so they go on with the experiment 
And the experiment is such that it's almost like it's not exactly set up this way, but it almost looks like it's a blood transfusion. I think it is supposed to be a blood transfusion because the idea is that like they are kidnapping these girls and then draining them of blood. And then it sounds like, you know, it's it's not so much a all in one go. It's like a juice box thing. Like when the girls are. <laughs> totally drained of blood that's when they get dumped in the river kind sure. of thing right but i, I think, love that you say juice boxes because i i am notorious for just sucking those things dry in one go so. <laughs> um the the thing about it is that while it does seem to be a blood transfusion there's like something else going on here the movie does a smart thing which is not try to like explain what's going on yeah the but the language that gets thrown around here is about like the vital life force and how the professor's experiments are all about trying to like keep your vitality going like after death and hence the experiments on dead joseph and so on yeah so they do the experiment and it does work Marguerite's face melts away to reveal Giselle. Um, But it's so extreme, like she's kind of like in pain, clearly. And Lorette gets put into a coma as a result. Again, Giselle goes after Pierre and she's like, come help me into this paint shop, Pierre. Look how much money I have. Art shop. Sure, sure. She's buying buying a painting. She's not just like picking up like a bucket of like Arctic white to like redo the dining room. (laughs) So Pierre follows her in. He's humoring her. And so she goes to sign this check and she can't seem to write her name. And it's like she goes to write it with her right hand. It doesn't quite work. She goes to write it with her left hand. Um, Oh, I didn't set it up. Lorette's left handed. Yeah. So she goes to write with her left hand and it doesn't quite work. And Pierre notices this and he's like, oh, are you left handed? I've never noticed before. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm like ambidextrous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Manages to sign whatever, but then leaves in a hurry. And Pierre asks the art dealer and he's like, no, I've, I've never seen her write with her left hand before. So Pierre's like, something strange is afoot at the Castle du Grand. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes in to investigate. He basically needs to find some kind of evidence in order to get the police involved. As he's there, he doesn't find anything. But as he's in there, we see Joseph awaken. And you might be thinking, but he's supposed to be dead. Yeah, but now he has a big scar over his neck. And he's clearly like confused and having trouble walking. Joseph manages to stumble out and runs into Pierre and Pierre recognizes him and takes him to the police station. And that's when Joseph basically confesses. He's like, I kidnapped them. I kidnapped the girls, but only because of being manipulated. Um, They killed me, but now I'm back. And the the police are like, huh? Okay. Um, But no, really, like I, I kidnapped them, but they're the murderers and I don't know what they did with them after. And then he like collapses. Um, I don't know if he dies or not, but... I think they did say he died. Ah. Thus ends the tale of Joseph. Yes. So the police are like, okay, this gives us enough cause to go and look for Duchess Marguerite and ask her what's going on at the castle. But they go and they can't find Marguerite because Giselle is there. Uh, Marguerite ran to the store. (laughs) (laughs) They go searching and we do see the professor and his assistant kind of like 
hiding things. And the assistant goes up to where Lorette is and, like, chloroforms her in order to, like, move her. The police do find these rooms, but they're completely different. The equipment is gone. The room where Lorette was is now a storage room. Like, there's no sign of her. Um, So the police are like, okay, well, thanks, bye. And Pierre's like, no, really, like, there's something fucked up going on here. This whole time, Giselle's been playing, like, as if Pierre is upset that she turned him down. Yeah. And that's why he's here harassing her. And she's getting more and more worked up about Pierre, like, being so intense about, no, we we have to search this place. She's hiding something. And the strong emotion causes her age to revert back to being Marguerite, just as the police are leaving. Yeah, there's, like, one cop at, like, the back of the group as they're going out the door who's like, wait a minute, what the fuck? (laughs) Everyone turns to look. And she is, like yelling profanities at them basically as she like turns back to marguerite and at that point inspector chantal is like fuck it let's search this castle no one gets out yeah um they find the assistant uh they have a shoot shoot battle (laughs) gunfight (laughs) it was close a gunfight assistant dies uh they end up shooting the professor and when they turn his body over they're like wait the Professor Dugan's supposed to be dead. Check the coffin. <laughs> and that's where they find Lorette, who is still in her coma. Um, so she's safe. We get some scenes of her recovering in the bed. Um, Pierre saying, like, oh, I'm sorry I got you in, in trouble and, and stuff. And, like, implied they're going to be happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also get a scene of the inspector explaining, like, yeah, no, I thought something was weird. So I tried to, like, search, but we couldn't give our hand away because we didn't technically have a search warrant. So I was begging for something to happen. And thank God something did happen. By the way, Marguerite died 10 minutes ago. Off after screen. We, off screen after we arrested her. And uh, everything's wrapped up. Yeah. Let's he, go get some coffee. Yeah. yeah, he has this little, like, tying up all the loose ends and questions speech. Yeah. And then that's the end. So the way that you can tell if a scene was shot by Freda is if um, Gianna Maria Canali is in it, because like she was not there for any of the like reshoots in the last two days. Is that Giselle? Yeah. Slash Marguerite. Yeah. Which is why her character dies off screen. Yeah. I, I had a feeling. Yeah. In the original script, she was supposed to hang herself. Whoa. Because like, oh, everyone's found out my secret and knows that I'm actually old and ugly. Yeah. 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 Especially because she dies off screen. I was kind of hoping that like maybe she died from like turning to dust, you know, turning (laughs) to skull face to dust. Right. But no, it was just like, yeah, she she died. Yeah. Uh, The professor's assistant was supposed to be a Frankenstein. Um, and you can sort of tell this because he's got like a big scar mm-hmm. on his face. And he limps around. Yeah. And his arms kind of like move weird. Because, um, yeah, he's supposed to be he's supposed to be a Frankenstein monster. basically. Yeah. The inspector would have originally been the protagonist. OK. Um, Pierre was always, you know, in the movie. And I think him and Lorette were always supposed to be like the young breeding couple essentially. Cause like Chantal's quite a bit older. Like the idea was supposed to be like this meddling journalist getting involved. And that gets this like 
innocent girl captured and like Chantal's having to like, you know, play cleanup. And this is sort of why Chantal's characterization kind of like metronomes back and forth between being like totally in control of what's going on to kind of incompetent, Mm -hmm. um, depending on kind of what scene we're doing because yeah, he was supposed to be sort of the one driving the investigation. So all the scenes where it's like, Pierre doing all the major heavy lifting in terms of like figuring out the clues and following Joseph and doing investigative stuff all would have been like Chantal originally. Okay. Um, so they had, it wasn't so much an issue with Chantal's actor of like, we didn't have access to him because clearly they shot some stuff with him in the reshoots, uh, particularly that last scene. Um, it was more a thing of like, how can we shoot everything we need for the story to make sense in two days and Mm -hmm. it was much easier to do that if it's just like this one character going around and doing everything um who like isn't accompanied by like an army of extras and and all these other things so that's basically like the major differences Mm -hmm. um so i think they did a really seamless job honestly um you don't really notice it other than if you do ask yourself the question like what's up with the assistant like what's his story Or when you get to the end and it's like, ah, yes, and the lead villain died off screen. She went back to her home planet. (laughs) Like, you know, um, that's something that kind of gives it away a bit, too. Yeah, I think probably the thing that took up a lot of their time and probably a large part of their budget was the production design. Oh, yeah. They are doing so really much big elaborate sets on a very small budget and it looks really good you can kind of tell they're painted walls to made to look like stone walls with like weird statues in the castle and weird drapes and stuff but like it's really well done well i think why it's well done is because like the painting itself and the design itself is good because yeah you can depending on how close the camera gets to some of the walls, you can definitely tell that like they're just sort of flat, like cardboard walls that have been painted up to look uh, like castles. But the painting is really well done and the design of it is really cool. And so you can kind of forgive it. And even in the apartment, um, just the amount of mise-en-scene that's going on there was really impressive. The final room that Lorette goes into, there's like a bird cage by a window, but its shadow is being projected on like the main like wall above the fireplace and it's spinning. So it really catches your eye. So it feels like, Oh yeah, you trapped, you fucked up girl. Yeah. Um, and just like really complex that way. Yeah. They really have a lot of atmosphere in this movie and they're really going for it despite the fact that they don't really have the budget for it or the time. Right. And, you know, this extends to the fact that, like, I th- I'm pretty sure the only shot that is actually on location is the scene where they scoop the girl out of the river at the very start. Because any other time that they're outside, I'm pretty sure that they are on a set. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of occasions where the sets are being designed with these, like, weird forced perspective backdrops. It's sort of like... If you had, you know, the floor, like the, the street and the sidewalks are real and people are standing on them and there's a real car that they're standing behind. But like the background, the sky, and then even like coming forward into like 
what the building beside the sidewalk is coming towards the camera. That's all just like a picture of Paris that someone's like blown up to a big size and like kind of like molded along some walls with some forced mm-hmm. perspective. And like some mat work yeah. going on, which I think is honestly was smart. Yes. Because they're in, supposed to be in Paris, right? Yeah. If they were shooting on location, it would be clearly in Italy. Yeah. And I think there's like some shots where they're outside and you see the sky, but all of the ones where you actually see a real sky, it's like the camera's very low angle looking up, so you don't see anything else. So they're probably just standing outside the soundstage, basically. And ultimately, while if you're looking for it, you can tell that it's fake, at the end of the day, I also know that vampires don't exist. (laughs) So like, I'm not like super bothered by it. Like, it's actually kind of fun to sort of notice all the things and try to like, figure out how they did them, but it doesn't ruin your enjoyment of the movie, Mm -hmm. or at least it shouldn't. Um, If it does, uh, you need to like take a step back. Mm -hmm. I think Um, the acting was all right. I think Lorette and Giselle slash Marguerite were probably the two standouts, but there were no failures. You know, there was no one who I was just like, ugh. yeah, absolutely. I mean, It's hard sometimes for me to identify bad acting in foreign films. Yeah. Because I'm not quite sure sometimes what it looks like in other languages, uh, oddly enough. But certainly there was like no one here who I thought was coming across as as like bad. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I agree with you there for sure. I really liked the score of this movie. Yeah. It was sort of fun to hear something so lush in a horror movie and something that was like, you know, entirely new and not like half made up of stock music. And yeah. And I think it did some really good work with like helping set the mood, um, helping, you know, the movies pacing Yeah, because it is complex. I think it could have in the hands of a different director, perhaps, um, could have felt like very much like a B movie of like, now we're at this location. Then we go back to this location. Then we come back and it's like, Oh, he's not there. And then we go back to this police station. Yeah. At no point did I feel like we were wasting time. One of the things that can really help combat that problem of B movies, I feel like is, you know, I'll use the example of Lorette going to the apartment, getting snatched and then Lantan bringing the police there and no one's there right? The thing that really helps with that is when you go back to the location, is your camera in a different place? Are you Mm -hmm. looking at the location from different angles? Because I think the thing that really makes that kind of pacing issue and that kind of like padding for time stand out and great on you is when you realize that like, oh, they just stuck a camera on a tripod and shot every single scene in this location one after the other at the exact same time without doing anything. Like just sort of parading the actors through. Absolutely. Um, The explanation that's at the end from the inspector was not like the worst. We've definitely had way more egregious examples of that. And I also appreciated that they didn't try to like, at any point in the movie, try to have humor to offset what was going on. Very true. The movie is fun though. Is how I would describe it. Like lots of great atmosphere, mystery, spooks. Um, There are grisly details. Um, You know, people get killed on screen. We see dead bodies. We see people's scars. We see, you know, all kinds of stuff. People get shot. 
Um, there are like full ass skeletons in closets, you know, lots of, of grisly stuff, but the movie doesn't have comic relief, but everything's sort of presented in such a way that like it's kept fairly light. Like it's, it's dark and spooky in the way that a horror movie should be, but it's, it's a fun horror movie. Like you can tell that this is for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, like the movie almost starts saying something about like class and the way that the rich feed off the poor and stuff, but it, it doesn't really quite get there. And my feeling is that the filmmakers were not like trying to make a statement. They were just trying to like spin a fun yarn. Absolutely. Which is fine. And they succeeded. I think if, if I were to come in and try to make changes to this movie to make it go further or Mm -hmm. do something else, um, I think it would have been better if the final transformation would have gone from Giselle to Marguerite to a skull (laughs) in like a invisible man or Jekyll and Hyde kind of situation or something. Right. Um, if we needed an explanation at the end, there should have been something more like from the professor's notes or the professor on his deathbed or something, not just standing around listening, standing around listening to the inspector give exposition and Lorette should have died in the, experiment yeah but they're certainly like clearly working with the pieces they have absolutely at the end of the day and yeah i think it would have been really powerful to have something about like that social commentary um especially given the context that this movie came out in but i i don't think their intentions were to set out to do that yeah like and I you don't said think they were a... trying to make a fun yarn they wanted to make something that wasn't neorealism mm-hmm. and I, I do think they succeeded at their goals and neorealism is full of social commentary so i can see like trying to get away from that as well yeah like basically at one point like the closest the movie gets to social commentary is at one point like lantan talking to giselle and being like yeah, you think you can just like order me around to do whatever you want because you're nobility. I'm just uh, the slave class. And then there's the fact that, you know, she's killing all these people with impunity to like feed off of them. And like you can read metaphors into that, but it's not something the movie is like going for, right? Mm-hmm. As for your desire to have her like disintegrate into a skull at the end, I think that was probably never in the cards because of how they set up the like lore i guess you could say in the movie yeah it's not like every time she reverts back she's getting older yeah she's just going to her natural age yeah and it's not like she's like two thousand years old and been doing this since medieval times like the the implication is that marguerite was giselle's age now in the 1920s that like she got turned down by lantern in like 1925 and so if we assume that giselle is the same age as Gianna Maria Canali, the actress. That means that Giselle's like 30. So if Margarita was 30 in 1925, that would mean that she's like 60-something now, like 62, uh, which is not like dissolve into dust old, right? I mean, unless you're in Hollywood. Sure. Um, Speaking of like how old she is, Um, you know, I guessed the twist of the movie early as did you. Um, but that just means that I was pleased when I turned out to be right. Like, cause you get excited about like, oh, is that what this movie's going to be about? That'll be so cool. And then it's like, oh, cool. It is. I always like it when the mastermind villain is like an old woman. Um, I just always 
maybe i i like old lady vampires yeah i was thinking about that like i think i think it's just because i really like vampire yeah um but i do think that the movie would have been better served if she had been older like if she'd been in her like 90s and it was like pierre's grandfather yeah or something because honestly the difference between giselle and marguerite is like she doesn't have her late 50s italian movie star makeup on uh when she's marguerite um her hair is white her teeth are kind of blackened uh she has some bags under her eyes Um, don't we all (laughs) and you know i think there's something like where her lips are a little different but like that's that's kind of about it, which makes her like complete, like disgust with herself feel like a little over the top. And I mean, there's something you could do about that where it's like vain people who obsess over every little thing when like looking at her, it's like, Hey, if, if that's how you look when you're 60, like you've aged quite gracefully. Um, you know, there could be a statement about vanity there, but I don't think that's what the movie's going for. And I think like, yeah, if she had like reverted into like, you know, like Emperor Palpatine levels of decrepitude. <laughs> um, it would have been more powerful of a visual, like more shocking, more more horrific, I guess. Yeah. Um, but it is always cool to see the old Jekyll and Hyde makeup trick get used. Yeah, it's always nice when that comes back. And it's still always just like, oh, look, it's doing the thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say uh, there ain't... No actual vampires in here. The they're 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 science vampires and and metaphor vampires. <laughs> yeah, this movie actually has a lot more in common with uh, the corpse vanishes. Yes, and it's also got a bit of murders in the room morgue, um, a bit of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. a lot of like disparate sources here. But it's like I don't know if it's explicitly trying to do an homage, but it's definitely like more than homage. They're probably something in the fact that they've probably both movies are drawing on that same Countess Bathory source. Yeah. I will say that while it's tempting to look back in time and and try to guess like what movies Freda is like pulling from for his aesthetic here. Um, And this movie does, as Sarah said, this movie has an aesthetic, which I think speaks to the fact that like both the director and the cinematographer slash director were like artists before they were filmmakers. Mm -hmm. It's also important, I think, to look forward in time at the influence this movie had going forward. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is our first Italian horror film, and obviously horror becomes a big Italian genre and obviously like a big part of that is Mario Bava who you know finished off this film and would go on to direct like the big deal early Italian horror films but there was one specific detail that I noticed that had my like film history connections like sense going (laughs) Um, which is that like at the early portions of the movie when like Joseph is kidnapping people or when we don't know that it's Professor DeGrand who's like ordering him around or whatever, you know, the mysterious assailant, the vampire of the papers at the start of the movie, we only see as like someone with black gloved hands. And that's an imagery that we last saw in the spiral staircase as a way of like concealing the killer's identity. But it is also the trademark visual of the mystery killer in Jalo movies, 
which is the Italian horror thriller sexploitation mashup genre that emerges in the 1960s from the films of Mario Bava. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that definitely would set off your brain. Yeah. Like Mario Bava does these movies in the sixties that, that bring the genre into existence and they use the gloved hands. And then that just becomes like a genre trope and every Jalo movie does it Mm -hmm. after that. Um, So seeing it here was like, ah, (laughs) I think I enjoyed this movie more than like the Mexican or French attempts we've seen to try and like jump into the horror genre. I would agree though. This has the benefit of coming in 1957, whereas those came out, like in Mexico, it came out in like the 30s-ish, I think, and in France, like the 40s. <laughs> yeah, this this has the advantage of coming out later. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're comparing movies, do we want to move on to ranking? Yeah, I think I'm ready for that. So, Sarah, uh, where were you looking? Well, because of the similarities, I did start by looking at The Corpse Vanishes at 108. Okay. This movie is obviously better than The Corpse Vanishes. Yes, <laughs> oh yes. God. Yeah. So I, was, I looked up from there. Gotcha. Obviously. And the other movie that I kind of settled around and thought of was the French film Le Loup de Melvinez. Sure. Uh, which is at 77. And the reason that came to mind is because it's one of the French horror movies and it's very much a universal homage. And mm-hmm. I think that Evampiri is better. Yes, I would agree. Um, because it's also trying to do its own thing. And it's trying to do just like one thing. Like even though yeah. this movie has a mad scientist and undead people and a Countess Bathory thing and, and whatever they all tie in together. Like it's complicated, but they all tie in. Whereas like Lulu de Malvenor was like mad scientists and like a Gothic Jane Eyre thing and like a werewolf and And Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. And like murder mystery stuff. Like it was just a lot of stuff. So I put that as my floor looking up. I settled around the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde at number 52. Because of that, like, you know, obviously, like, the dual personality thing. Mm. Um, And I just thought that it was interesting to compare. Because the 41 Jekyll and Hyde, it fails to realize that in order for that story to work, people need to have sex drives. Yeah, it tries to bury the character's motivations in subtext. And that doesn't work. Yeah. This movie doesn't have any kind of those same problems, but it does have like high production. Well, it appears to have high production value. (laughs) I know it's a B movie. Uh, I don't know. It just felt like interesting to compare. So that makes my range 52 to 77. Okay. Uh, My range is just slightly higher than yours. Interesting. Um, So as I said, I thought this was better than like the French and Mexican horror movies that we've seen. So I sort of looked for those and most of them are kind of all bunched together in a string from 71 to 77. So I found that area and I started looking up from there, 
right above there is stuff like Night Monster and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and so it was easy to keep going up. I hit number 58, The Black Room, and went, oh, The Black Room's real good, though. And so I decided this was definitely better than Not of This Earth, the Corman movie about the space vampires who have the, the eyes that like turn you to stone or whatever it is and dress like the men in black. Definitely better than that. Uh, but the black room is really good. We respect it quite a bit. So I made that my floor. Looking up from there, I was trying to find a, a spot where it felt like, okay, what's definitely better than this movie? Um, making my way up, you know, passing by usual suspects like dementia and the man with no face. I ended up settling below House of Wax, which does this same kind of like, oh, someone's preying on young women and we got to find out who it is to rescue one. And like the bad guy is someone with like a terrible secret and I think does it a lot better um, because it's like a bit more lurid in its visuals. Um, You know, it, it goes for that shock visual at the end in a way that this movie doesn't quite make it. So I decided to make my ceiling number 41, below House of Wax above Queen of Spades. That creates some overlap in our ranges, specifically from Jekyll and Hyde to Not of This Earth, uh, that like 52 to 59 range. Sure. Part of the reason why I didn't go higher when I was looking at my range is The Leopard Man is at number 50, Mm -hmm. and... While that movie struggles a little bit um, and, you know, is trying to be like one of the early serial killer movies, it has a few very powerful moments. Yeah, I think it achieves greater suspense and terror and horror than this movie does. The scenes in Evampiri that stand out to me as being very evocative and very powerful is when Lorette wakes up at one point and she's trying to escape and she opens up a room where there's skeletons in the closet, but they're like mummified people. Yeah. It's, it's that like, they look like just bodies that have been left there. And she screams and faints and like the camera does, or rather the editing, I guess does a really good job of cutting between the different mummified faces. That's probably like one of the more strong visuals and moments but it's not a full sequence like the panther killing that girl. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the other scene that I would say probably stands out the most in Evan Peary is like the first time that we see Giselle revert to Marguerite and she shoots that guy. Um, yeah. The, for me, that was more like, yeah, fuck that dude up. Um, <laughs> rather than like terror or horror. Sure. This is, you know, Ivan Pieri plays in the gothic horror side of the swimming pool. Because of that, it sort of falls a bit, at least from a modern perspective at least, into that, like, Halloween horror sure. feel where it's more about, like, spooky castles and skulls and uh, cobwebs and, you know, old people um, <laughs> and that kind of thing. You know, Mad Scientist rather than Val Luton's movies, which always were much more sort of modern day nightmares. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm in agreements about keeping below the Leopard Man. I will say that in between the Leopard Man and Jekyll and Hyde, 
is The Man Who Changed His Mind from 1936, which is the first brain swapping movie. Yeah, that movie I really fucking enjoy. Um, it does black comedy really well. Yes. Uh, I mean, the title itself is a great joke. Oh, it's so good. And, you know, the ending is really powerful. Like, I can see it in front of my mind. I think it, it really achieves everything that it sets out to do in a way that even Peary struggles because of the, the reshoots they had to do. Um, through no fault of their own, really. Like, I think even Peary is really good for what it is and what kind of happened behind the scenes. But I don't know. That, that's how I feel, I guess. Okay. Would you be good with putting this at number 52 then, below The Man Who Changed His Mind, but above the Spencer Tracy Jekyll and Hyde? Yeah. Okay. Then I think that's what we're going to do. So entering the list at the new number 52 is Ivan Piri from 1957, directed by Ricardo Freda and Mario Bava. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the podcast app of your choice, or just tell a friend about us. Uh, Meet up with your friends if you're all double vaccinated and you're following your local health regulations. And when they say, what have you been doing the past year while you've been in lockdown? You say, I've been listening to Scream Scene and you should too. If you have the means, you can also support us monetarily by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast. You can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month and get thanked on the show. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content. By becoming a patron, you not only support our hosting fees and the time that we take to produce these episodes every week, you also are contributing towards special projects like doing horror-adjacent episodes, for instance. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, to the best of my knowledge, we're going back into trash next week. Oh, no. Um, we are staying in anamorphic widescreen. Uh, that's one of the few things I know about this movie. Uh, but we are watching a American bee movie called She-Devil. She-Devil? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right, well, I look forward to it. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.